Hello. Hello, humans. <laughs> um, I am doing a road riff, uh, road riff episode. And this one is called No Longer an Optimist, But What I Am Instead. to have some of these qualities. I tend to see the best in people. I'm able to see the best in people, sometimes to my detriment. But my identity for many, many years was built around making other people feel good. And I did, this was not conscious. I did not, like, write in my journal and say, I think this is what I need to be so that I'm not rejected. This was my subconscious coping skills manifest, manifested. And I became um, somebody who believed in the power of prayer and somebody who believed in magic and unicorns and optimism and positivity. I am somebody who used to tell her fears to F off. I needed things to be fun and uplifting for many, many, many years, even in my coaching career, even in my coaching career, especially in the productivity coach, math coach days. I mean, that was expected of me. I came from a culture in that company where we were taught that complaining equals garbage and you're either happy and positive or you're a victim. So there was a lot of shame around any kind of difficult emotions. And I no longer claim to be an optimist. I do not want that identity. It did serve me, but it didn't serve me. It served me in the temporary Sorry, I didn't realize I had my AC. It is 108 degrees outside. I had my AC blowing on y'all. That that served me when I was driven subconsciously by this good girl, be happy, be positive, managing everybody else's emotions and experience by me needing everybody else to feel good period, pause. Um, Earlier this year, I'm not sure when, my little sister gave me, um, she said, hey, you should look up the uh, Adult Children of Alcoholics Bill of Rights. And I looked it up and I immediately hand wrote it in my journal. And then I immediately hand wrote another one and laminated it because it resonated with me so much. Um, I have a PDF of it now I can send you if you ask me for it. Uh, just send me an email, and I will send you a two-page PDF, or one that you can print front and back. 
or you can write your own. There's a couple different versions out in the ACA, and the ACA is Adult Children of Alcoholics. And I did grow up in an alcoholic family, and I did. I do remember my dad, um, and I, I can appreciate his, you know, willingness to admit this even from very young that I, I grew up in a dysfunctional family. And so, in a dysfunctional family, and often in an alcoholic family, um, that trauma is built around managing other people's experience. I think many of us have this experience. Um, Many of us have this experience and lots of different, from lots of different sources. Many of the people I work with and know are recovering people pleasers, high achievers. This other aspect that has come in is the neurodiversity, and my personal diagnosis is ADHD. Since before I was 12, I can't remember, I think it's combined type. And what I am learning about that is when you have that, and especially if you're undiagnosed, your whole world is masked. Um, you are definitely managing everybody else's nervous systems and not yours. You're managing everybody else's affect and not yours. Then add on the um, religious upbringing of my school. I do not recall my parents putting this on me, but this I definitely bought into this from my school, from my college groups, from Young Life, from Canicock, from all from campus from Christ, from all the youth group stuff I did through my mid-twenties. I bought into it, okay? I, I, my psyche believed it. Um, but it was the same kind of thing, that my goal was to be a godly woman in service of a godly man. And that was my whole meaning in life, and that was what my worth was. Was I good enough Christian? Was I good enough positive? Was I, was I good enough in my kindness? Was I good enough in my service to others? And so subconsciously, I built these identities around shiny, happy, positive Allison. Now listen, I love genuinely feeling shiny, happy, easy to feel, joyous emotions. And so I became an optimist. And as I mature and grow, do some of this inner work and go further with my internal family systems work, both as a professional and as an individual. As I deconstruct my identity in terms of being neurodivergent, which many of you know I was diagnosed a year and a half ago in March, and some things are just now hitting me. Um, around how my identity was shaped that have affected my whole life. I do not feel a victim of this. I feel clear. And I feel feel clear. I understand. And I understand why so many parts of me were insecure when everything on the outside was looking and feeling amazing. And so um, I've noticed a couple times recently as my amazing clients are sharing with me various stories and some of their struggles in the context of their story. And I witness and sense from so much love in my heart that old familiar reference, other referencing, needing everything to be good and positive. And recently one of my clients who is a professional 
um, this person is not self-employed, they're professional, and they were sharing something with me, which I will keep in confidence, but my response was, I need to share something with you that may not feel good, but it's absolutely true, so that you can have true ground to walk on as you walk in the doors of this company every day. And this person said, give it to me. And I said, your company does not care about you. They don't care. They care about their bottom line. That's what companies are supposed to do. They don't care about the employers. Now, they will do everything they can to act like they do, but they don't care. And it sounds really fucking harsh. I told another client today was telling me about a struggle, and I said, the problem with personal development is they have given you only one option, and the only one option is that this feeling has to be healed, that you will overcome this block or overcome this feeling and never have it again. And that is not an honest and fair promise because we do not know. You could die at 107 years old with this feeling. And a lot of even personal development teaches us this I this fairy tale. And y'all, the fairy tale feels good. For the last, I don't know, eight years, I have not resonated with being an Enneagram seven. Because I because that happy Pollyanna these things to be fun and spontaneous used to be my the way I moved through the world that was so clearly a mask to me now like that was just a way that I that was that conditioning right that was me orienting towards everybody else's happiness but not really being congruent on the inside and recently I heard a woman Suzanne Stabile her podcast is the Enneagram Journey, and she says none of those behavior tests are worth anything. <laughs> I love that. Because they're measuring behavior, not motivation. And so when I re-looked at Enneagram, because whenever I take this test, I never test as a 7. I test everything but a 7. I don't test as an 8. <laughs> uh, but I, I do not test as a 7. It just it, There's a lot of things that depend on how when I take this test. And so... And maybe somebody else has taught me this before, and I just couldn't hear it. But this time with Suzanne Stabile, I heard her say that. I heard her say that if you were a woman, a white woman in the South, and you were raised in Christianity, you were trained to be an Enneagram, too. Like, that was the standard of how we should behave. Okay, little side note there. Um, There was some controversy around that post when I put it on Facebook. That is not knocking Enneagram 2, but it's very different to actually be an Enneagram 2 and resonate with the genuine underlying emotions of an Enneagram 2 and being a completely different Enneagram number motivated by something else and behaving as if. So I read the Enneagram in her context and I read the primary motivations of an Enneagram 7 And absolutely, it makes perfect sense. 
And then I was like, well, doesn't everybody want to avoid pain and discomfort at all costs? And so I went to look at the motivations of the other numbers. And they had different motivations, right? The need to be needed. Um, the need to, I was talking with somebody else the other day, and they were confused about their Enneagram number, and we were having this conversation, and they were like, everything I've ever done has been to create peace. I just want peace. And sure enough, they're an Enneagram 9 who never tests as an Enneagram 9. If you don't know about the Enneagram, I'm so sorry. It's a great thing to look up, but there's lots of false stuff out there. I can point you to some references. I'm not an expert in Enneagram by any means. But I am a student and an expert in a lot of ways of motivation. And when I'm talking with a client, actually when I'm listening to a client and I hear them, I can hear and feel in my body their longings and motivation in between the words they say. I can hear when the words that they say is the truest, deepest longing or if there's more. It's just something my nervous system is attuned to. It's also something that my ADD brain can pick up on really easily. It's part of my gift when I'm in a coaching session. When that stuff's not in a coaching session, it's a problem. It's hilarious. Ooh, pink Cadillac. How cute is that? Um, so, you know, in the last couple of weeks, I've shared with these clients, I said, listen, I, I want to put something on the table, and you don't have to pick it up. But one of the things I have seen and experienced in life, and I'm not saying victim, I, you know, there's a distinction I make in my book called called reason versus fault. And I, to me, this is not about fault. This is not about this is the system's fault, and I'm a victim. And yet, y'all, we're all victims of the system. My system capital system, my inner psyche, mind, body, spirit, psyche, is, has these motivations, the deepest core motivation. It's this combination of nature and nurture and choice, and this never done nature, nurture, and choice. And one of the biggest driving forces in my life has been to avoid pain. So, so I became, subconsciously, a positive Pollyanna, happy text kind of girl to avoid pain. And as many of you know, in the last definitely three years, if not seven years, I have gone, I, have, I surrendered myself to this journey of being willing to feel uncomfortable emotions and no longer demonizing those. And with that has come a more sobering and clear view of the world. And I know some of you picked this up. My brother and my sister picked this up early on. They saw bullshit. I did not intellectually see bullshit. My body could feel it, but I wasn't paying attention to my body. I was paying attention to information. So at the information level, I didn't get it. My body got it, but I was used to ignoring my body and paying attention to what everybody else liked. So everybody else likes the bliss of ignorance. I really get on some of my darkest days that ignorance is bliss because when you know more, when you see clear and see the truth, it can be depressing as all get out. Fortunately, both of my clients, 
and I trust the relationship with them, and I tr- I know them well enough to know that they could hand, you know, I set what I set on the table about this may not have this Pollyanna version, right? This work organization doesn't really care about you. You might die with this emotional experience never having resolved itself. And if that's true, then how do you want to be in the world? We're not taught, you know, I I don't think my client's employer not caring about them is reason to quit the job. Most corporations and businesses do not care. I'm not saying all. They don't care about people, but it doesn't serve them to say, we don't give a shit about you. We only give a shit about our bottom line. And here's all the ways we're going to make you feel like you matter. But at the end of the day, we're going to need what we're going to need you to do what we need you going to do. We're going to need you to do what we ask you to do, even if it makes you feel like shit, because we don't want you to portray our family. So when you have a corporation, I saw Adam Grant say this on LinkedIn one day. He's like, if a corporation is selling you the family line, run, because it's toxic. The company you work for is not family. It's not family. A lot of us can create closeness with the people with whom we have geographical sameness. And I wasn't saying it to be mean, and I watch client after client after client and conversation after conversation and conversation, whether it's clients or not, I see it everywhere, is people holding themselves to an impossible standard. an impossible standard of avoiding or having a life without discomfort and pain. We already know about the, like, impossible beauty standards and airbrushing. But every single day, I see people emotionally airbrushing their lives and wondering why there is a gaping wound in the core of their being. And the reason I recognize it is because I did it. And so what I like to tell my clients is not that life sucks and then you die, because that is not me. But this is where the phrase, the wild edge of being human, came from. Most of the systems of society, even the ones we deem as positive, like your church or my personal development, can be misleading. Most human beings don't have the capacity for difficult emotions. Why why everybody's acting like a fucking fool out in the world these days? But if I'm playing with reality, and you can tell me reality is subjective, and that's not what this conversation is about. But if I know the difficult going in then the strategy I make to go through the difficult is much more effective. And as a grown-ass woman in her 50s who's been coaching for almost 20 years, 
and is working with most people who are absolutely spent a lifetime doing personal development and personal growth and wondering what is wrong with them because it's not working, I am having to help them deconstruct and show them that they have been taught to control the difficult and eliminate it, which is an impossible ideal. Many years ago, I started saying that my spirituality became my human. I felt, sensed, heard from God that that was the journey that I was supposed to go on, that I was supposed to find infinite love in my humanness. And that's the spirituality I'm sticking with. And conversation after conversation, I watch brilliant human beings that don't even realize they're subconsciously denying themselves permission to be human. And so that's the realism part. I'm doing the same thing with ADD. What are Alison Crow's markers of ADD? How does the science of ADD, and listen, if you all have an old vision of what ADD is and you haven't researched ADD in masked women over 50, we were not diagnosed. We masked. I know so many people that are out there doing amazing things and their internal world is still gasping for air to manage everybody else's experience, which is also an ADD thing. If I can see... so funny. I like... Here's a secret genius. Some of you may know or may not know. Um, like, I'm the one who does all the wiring in our house, like the computer wiring... When I worked for the Catholic school, I taught, brought my computer to school. I stole dial-up from the principal. Um, like, we shared the same line. We're the only two that had the computers in the school. And then the next year, the principal that came in was like, hey, why don't you be the technology coordinator? And so, like, you know, all those servers with the wires and all that other stuff. And when something breaks like that in my house, Allison, like, if I die, somebody needs to help Bill with all the technology. <laughs> I'm the technology person. And one of the things, it's actually very logical, it's not that hard, it's overwhelming because when you look at it, it looks like a rat's nest. But one of the main things you do is you follow the lines and you restore connection. And y'all, I have so much compassion. You're, listen, you're not doing anything wrong. Nobody taught you. How could you know? Nobody taught you how to follow the lines and restore connection with your difficult feelings. And we think that if we can control difficult feelings, we will escape the pain of them. But nobody taught us how to connect with B. And in the words of more than one of my clients, I just want to be seen, heard, and validated for who I really am. And it's so fun because I don't tell my clients that they're supposed to want that. I hear and I listen and I write certain things down my clients say, and then when there's a chance to reflect back, I said, you know, I heard you say that this is what you wanted. And if they keep talking, man, it comes out almost every single time that deep in them, you know, what do you want for your husband? Da-da-da-da-da, I want to be seen, heard, and validated. What do you want at work? Da-da-da-da-da, seen, heard, and validated. What do you want in this, this, 
it's, it's always something like that. And wouldn't you know, these hurting parts inside of us, so there's the hurting parts and then there's the controlling parts. And I tend to work with a lot of my clients' controlling parts like perfectionism and striving and procrastination and, um, you know, all the things we typically call blocks in coaching. And um, those parts also need our tender, loving witness and validation. They don't need to be fixed because when they get the tender, loving validation, do you know they relax? They relax in your body and they open space for this sense of grounded clarity and confidence to come through. It's a bottom-up approach heard recently. I've noticed that thought, that feeling in my body is like, if I'm from my head down, my top down, like, yeah, I was really, really smart, but I was disembodied. I, I wasn't, like, it, I, could, I could be really smart and I could be really genius, but it felt empty in my body. I didn't know that. And now I know the difference between heady confidence, like intellect confidence, and whole being grounded, like, to the core of the earth, calm confidence. One is thirsty and one is satiated. One sucks the air of the room and the other one just is and gives to the room without depleting. But most of, most everything has taught us, all, you know, all these ways to override. And so for me, I'm not saying you can't be an optimist. That may be your natural state of being. My being takes a breath when she has permission to be human when she is still loved even though she drops the F-bomb, she is still loved even though she has deep insecurities, even though she overthinks, even though she feels big feelings, even though... I don't know anybody that doesn't want to be loved even though. And I don't know, I'm personally not spending time with people who are using their even those as cop-outs. So I get that there may be a certain population or certain relationships in your life where somebody is always using their shadow side, their discomfort, their struggles as a weapon. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about those of us who never let our struggles show because inside we are terrified that they will be used against us. And the hope comes from and I'll, I'll switch this into, so one of my core beliefs is that men leave. It is, I've done a lot of work on it over the years. My dad used to leave when my mom and dad would fight. It makes perfect sense as an adult. The three-year-old Allison didn't understand it, right? They would get mad. My dad would go for a drive. He always came home. But no one knew how to stand at the front door and say, Mommy and Daddy are mad at each other. Dad is going to go. Um, cool off. And when we wake up in the morning, we'll be reconnected. Because that was actually always what happened. But it created this sense that men weren't reliable and they leave. And then I married a very nice guy, and he left on a random Wednesday. And that kind of proved it all over again. And so when I got into this marriage, there was a part of me that always was scared that I was just going to wake up someday and my husband's going to do what my ex-husband did and go, I'm going to leave. And then... Through deep inner work, I realized I'm afraid I'm going to leave or I'm afraid I won't leave, like really addressing some of these really deep, deep, deep core wounds. 
I'm going to hit pause a little break. I um, am trying to find this restaurant where I'm going to go meet a friend. The whole part comes in is, and this is what I can tell my part. So when I would um, have some kind of experience, I would get, quote, triggered. It's a very popular word these days. I would get triggered. And when I would get triggered, instead of telling myself I'm wrong for getting triggered, I would say, oh, I see you're triggered. I'm not necessarily saying this out loud, but this is what happens in my inner system. I feel like, I get it. You're really, like, you're really burnt up right now. You're really mad. You're really hurt. You feel like your knees aren't met. I'm here for you. And the first thing I would do is I would get my body calm because you cannot learn something new when your nervous system is fucking fried. And if you're fighting with your partner, your nervous system is not in the relaxation response. It is not regulated. So I have learned to not try to convince myself of anything unless I am in a semi. My friend Isabel has like red, green, yellow or green, yellow, red, right? Don't try to do anything in the red zone. Don't try to have a conversation with yourself or with somebody else. If I can get to the yellow, call the bottom end of yellow, much closer to the green zone, then, you know, if I can get, get not to the green happy zone, but to just a little bit of physical regulation, then I can actually start listening to myself and comforting myself and getting a plan and so these parts would come up and I would say I'm there I'm here for you what are you afraid would happen if you didn't show up in the middle of this argument and for me my parts use language to talk to me and they would often say I'm afraid Bill will leave and I can't honestly say that Bill will never leave because that's not true that's the Pollyanna oh Bill will never leave us we're wonderful Bill will never leave us So instead, what I would say is, you know what, I think it would hurt, it would be so sad if Bill left us, it would not feel good, we've been through that, there's a validation, we've been through that, it doesn't feel good, I know, but you know what, we are not in charge of Bill, and he will either, you know, if he decides to leave someday, that would be awful, and... I will never leave you. That's the one thing I know for sure. Because even if Bill decides he never wants to leave, he could get hit by a bus. And that would suck too. So I can't control what Bill will or won't do. Bill is my husband for those of y'all that don't know. I can't control what Bill will or won't do. But I promise you, no matter what happens, I won't leave you. I won't leave you. And I noticed the first time I said that, had that conversation with myself, and listen, I've had it 10,000 times since then, my body relaxed. I, there was a, it wasn't just an intellectual piece. There was a physical piece. I won't leave you. I, I can't make XYZ come rescue me, but I won't leave you. I will rescue you. I don't know if so-and-so will be able to be what I need for you, Right? So let's take the very first one I told you all about the work situation. These employers don't care about you. doesn't mean you show up being an asshole and doesn't mean you quit. I will care about you. So my job is I walk into the employment place, right, or the the job, 
that's not supposed to care about me. I mean, wouldn't it be nice if humans and corporations treated each other decently, but let's be real, is my job is to take care of me. And so this is what, you know, helping my client reframe from going back into their job to manage everything so that she is liked and cared for is to care for herself and advocate for herself and trust herself to care for her, which makes it a lot easier for her to set boundaries from a calm place versus let boundaries get shoved over from a frantic place. And at the end of the day, the job, the contract, the work will be either negotiated for what works for both the employer and their employee, but at the end of the day, my client is able to make a decision both caring for her emotions, but also from her wisdom. And if she's not able to negotiate a position where her needs are met, but she doesn't put on the employers to meet her emotional needs, she meets her own emotional needs. It's kind of nuanced and it really depends on your perfect situation or your your specific situation. And so that gives me hope because, listen, I don't want to run around the world being like cynical, not trusting everybody, but we've all been disappointed and we will all disappoint ourselves. And so it's not that there is disconnection, but is there an opportunity for restoration of connection? And even if you've disconnected with yourself, the hope is that we can always connect within to our self-energy, to our parts. The title of Richard Swartz's couple's book, I think, is You Are the One You've Been Waiting For. Now, listen, some of my independent parts go, well, of course, I'm the only one I've been waiting for. I'm the only one who can do it. That's a part, and it has some burdens, and it has some needs that need to be addressed. But it's true. I can be. Self-energy can be the care and love I've always needed. And then I can lead myself and my part. It doesn't mean these parts are eliminated, right? And so I'm an optimist with hope. What gives me hope is learning new self-connection skills. And I had a client tell me, I didn't put this in their mind. They told me, they said, you know, I've been practicing this stuff and doing it here and there. And I noticed that I'm just starting to think this way in the world. And so I saw this interaction between two people. And I had, instead of reacting, I just felt so much compassion for them, which tells me my client feels compassion for themselves. That gives me hope, not just for the individual, but for the systems in the world. The systems of the world will never give us connection unless the leaders of those systems will connect with their true selves and not abandon themselves for the sake of money and power. I know, it's nuanced, advanced personal development. So I am no longer an optimist. Leave me if you must. I will never leave thee. I am a realist with hope.